Francesca Caruso specializes in uncovering the layers of Roman history for visitors. She's with us to point out what's behind the sights we see so we can view Rome as our city to treasure as well. Francesca, buongiorno. Ciao, Rick. Francesca, every day you take groups around Rome like an evangelist of art appreciation. <laughs> I've been following you for 20 years this way, and it, it just you're fresh now as you were when I first met you as far as your teaching mission. What is your mission as a teacher of travelers in Rome? I think my mission is to make Rome accessible because I understand that it can be overwhelming. And what do you do with 2,000 years of history? What do you do with 2,000 years of art? So it's really giving some ideas on how to navigate it, how to make sense of it all. What does it mean? What does it mean to us today? And you've got a wonderful classroom. Well, it's not a bad office to have. <laughs> <laughs> now, what are the big challenges? I mean, it's, it's hot, it's crowded, it's people don't know their history. Uh, what are the challenges? Well, all of this. I mean, it's becoming more and more crowded. Yes, the summers are getting very hot. But I think we have to understand that these things don't explain themselves. It is not true that if you stare at a painting or you look at a broken column, it's going to tell you what it means. So we need a little bit of help. We need a few ideas. How do I look at things? What did the ancient ruins look like when they were intact, for example? So... With a few ideas, we can do that. So when you're doing your work, are there moments when you feel like, yes, I've, I've really connected and, and this person has been opened up to the, the wonder of what I've loved for years? It's a moment that's the crossing of the threshold. It's that moment when you see that look in their eyes that they're right there. And sometimes I invite them to remember to think of themselves at home packing their suitcase before coming to Rome and then ask them, think of where you are now, <laughs> the real thing in the real place. Think about this. And I see that they look around themselves and they do. Well, there's these moments. I mean, now travelers can enter the Colosseum through, what do you call it, the gladiator entrance? Yeah, the stern entrance, yeah. And you're on the arena, you're on the floor, and you can hear the crowds, and you can see the wild animals. And yes, the imagination is absolutely ignited by these moments. Now, as a teacher, I mean, anybody could just walk through some gate and look at the Colosseum on the inside. It must be nice for you to be able to have an entry that makes sense for the story that you're trying to tell. Well, I think the story is the part. I, I don't think, you know, after 20 years of talking about these things, I, I think that it's not so much the stones in themselves. It's what the stones have to say. I mean, the idea that the stones carry cultures, they carry stories that, that we can think about and we can understand the past, but we can also understand ourselves and having a conversation with those stories. So, in other words, the art can actually be more than just enjoying something fascinating or beautiful. It can have meaning. It can have importance. Well, the Colosseum. Well, the Colosseum. I mean, the Colosseum is bricks and stones, but the Colosseum is a place of violence. It's a place of politics. It's a place where there is the ethical, moral issue that comes up. What does it mean that these people went there to watch death all day long? So it becomes a an occasion to reflect on the use of violence and propaganda. I think that's so interesting because a lot of people go, "Oh, those Romans." I mean. Arena, that's the word is sand, right? To soak up the blood. Absolutely. That's why it's called an arena, because yeah. it was uh, uh, covered with sand. So all the bloodshed on the opening celebration of the Colosseum, how many animals were slaughtered? It was 9,000 or something like that. I always recommend working with perception. I mean, to also think, okay, violence, but what if I had been an ancient Roman sitting in the audience and I saw my first lion, you know, never having seen a photograph of a lion, yeah. not knowing what a lion looked like, a lion pounces out of the floor for the first time. 2,000 years ago, without zoos and circuses and documentaries, what would that have meant? So if we can put ourselves in the shoes of people of the past, it creates a different understanding of history can, and culture. We, we don't need to be quite so judgmental. Exactly. And we also have to remember, what are the top-selling movies for us? You know, they're the shoot-em-ups, the Schwarzenegger movies, all this kind of stuff, the, the wrestling, the car racing, everybody waiting for a crash. I mean, there's a lot of 
consistency between 21st century and 2,000 years ago. My challenge as a tour guide, and I would imagine yours too, is helping people see things in that context. I mean, today we go to Rome, and it's a modern city sitting on the ruins of a city that used to have a million people in it. There were a million people in Rome 2,000 years ago. How do we envision that? How do we appreciate that? The imagination is key, but the imagination needs to be informed. So if I say that Rome is the first city in the West that reached a population of a million, that in antiquity was the most populated city on the planet, and there will never be a million people in a European city again after Rome until London in the 1800s, there, there you, you go. can start thinking right about there. it. Right there. Yes, and then you start saying, well, what did it mean to provide clean water, food, housing to over a million people 2,000 years ago? What did it look like? And then you're there. All of a sudden you're there and you're thinking like them. And you don't bring your baggage of perceptions of moral codes and ethics, but you're thinking like a Roman. And then that's the transformative aspect of travel, that you can be in the shoes of another person of another time. My challenge, and I just love this, is to not look at it from a yeah, I've been there, done that. I've seen it on TV. I saw that movie, you know, from the 20... Oh, we've got taller buildings or whatever. Put yourself in the context, and then you go, wow, they had a sewer system for a million people. They brought in water for a million people. They cooked bread for a million people. But if you're there, Rick, it happens. If you're on the other side of the world and you read it in a book, it's one thing. If you're in the place and you can imagine, you can think, you can reflect, you can feel, there are things that can happen if you're there that do not happen otherwise. It's these doors that open. It's these windows that open. It's a comprehension. Remember we talked about once how it felt to um, a Catholic pilgrim to walk into St. Peter's for the first mm. time 400 years ago? It's that idea of putting ourselves in the eyes and the shoes of travelers from the past. To step into St. Peter's Basilica for the first time and to be just dazzled by unimaginable glory. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Francesca Caruso about appreciating the art, specifically, of Rome. What's your favorite peaceful bit of antiquity where you can just sit alone with it? The Roman Forum is a place of my heart because you can sit on any stone and reflect on the passing of time. And you look at these stones that 2,000 years ago stood for the grandeur of the most amazing place the world had ever seen. Then as ruins, they come to stand for the fall and the loss of that grandeur. And as they sit there in the grass with the setting sun, they stand for the resilience of the human spirit. And it's always the same stones. I remember when I was 18 years old, I, I sat, there's a little viewpoint a viewpoint to this day, just on the Capitoline Hill, where you can, you can actually sit on the, on the banister or balustrade and dangle your feet and look out over what was called the cow field, I think, a couple Absol- hundred years yes, ago. Yes, when it became buried, that's uh, when it became buried over time, that's what it became known for. And then for. you could just think of 2,000 years of uh, coming and going and civilizations and wars and all that. I think there's actually ancient doors that have been swinging on the same hinge for 2,000 years, aren't there? Oh, yeah, where the lock still works. Where the lock still it's works. Those, it's those little epiphanies. How many have you encountered in your life as a traveler? When a place is unlocked, then it reveals its essence to you. It's those instants when, when you know that you're there and I you know that, that you get it. Now, in ancient Rome, the Tiber River was... I mean, Rome was built on the Tiber River, I suppose, for a reason. What's the importance, from a sightseeing point of view, what do we derive from the Tiber River? Well, I have to say that it doesn't offer the same experience that uh, rivers in other cities do because uh, the Tiber was also the reason Rome is in layers because it used to flood all the time and all the silt that accumulated through the ages made it rise vertically, the famous layers of Rome. So they solved that problem by building these high embankments in the 1800s. So now it's sort of isolated down there. We don't have this vital relationship with it. But reflecting on the River Tiber, is reflecting on Rome. It's reason to be is a river Tiber. Seems, I mean, this may be simplistic, but I always think of Rome as where the Etruscan civilization to the north met the Greek civilization to the south, 
as far as you could go up the river with the boat in the first place where there was a bridge over the river. Perfect center Perfect for a center. great capital. Oh, that's, you said it. That's there why it's there. <laughs> and the, the, the history makes sense when you can be right there and put it together. Another very interesting thing about Rome is, I mean, it's remarkably chaotic, but it's also remarkably protected. I, it didn't occur to me until recently there's almost no modern buildings in the city. There's the fascist train station and a couple of fascist buildings from the 30s. There's the modern buildings surrounding the Ara Pacis, the, mm-hmm. which is the great Roman Arch of Peace. Other than that, in central Rome, are there any post-World War II buildings? No, there aren't. And, and one theory that I read that I thought was fascinating is that during the fascist period, so much destruction took place, um, so much destruction of the antiquities and of also what Mussolini considered clutter around the major monuments that were destroyed and not documented. I think there was this deliberate decision after the war, never again. Oh, so they learned from that yeah, brutal approach to things as a fascist dictator We would. will not add our layer. I mean, it's... Mussolini wanted a grand procession up to St. Peter's Basilica, so what did he do? Yes, and then he wanted to be able to see the Colosseum from the windows. You know, so he from destroyed the back and... a whole medieval neighborhood. Absolutely. So never again. Francesca, it's easy to get overwhelmed in Rome by the outdoor sites and forget the indoor sites. Very briefly, what are a couple of galleries that you should see to make sure you're going to get a, a proper appreciation for all the marvelous statuary that has been taken in out of the acidic air so it can be properly preserved? Well, I mean, if I had to choose one museum in Italy, my choice would always be the Borghese. The Borghese Gallery has the most exciting art anywhere. Those statues by Bernini would convert anybody to art. I think that you can turn everybody into a museum fanatic at the Borghese. At the Borghese. With Bernini. And there you gain an appreciation for corrupt and filthy rich. Was Borghese a bishop or a cardinal? He he was a cardinal. He was what we call a cardinal nephew, the equivalent of a secretary of state. Must have been quite a corrupt guy because he had all the money in the world. Well, you know, helps to be the Pope's nephew. <laughs> <laughs> and he had a big palace in the middle of the big garden. And, and Bernini was dinner. basically, you got Bernini for your uh, decorator. Yes, I mean, he, he commissioned these four fantastic statues to him. But, you know, but I was thinking that these cardinals and these rich aristocrats were really like American millionaires who collected art in their great mansions to show off their power and their status. You know, it's very similar. There are all yeah. sorts of parallels that can be drawn. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been enjoying a little art appreciation in Rome with Francesca Caruso. Francesca, you've dedicated a beautiful life to showing Americans the wonders of Rome. What's the most gratifying thing for you when you take your groups around? As a Roman, it's, I think, when people realize that that Rome belongs to them too, that in everybody's background and the words that we use in English and the thoughts that we think, there's a little bit of Rome. And so Rome's everybody's home. It's everybody's city. That's what I like the most. That's a beautiful sentiment. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Francesca Caruso's website includes tips for touring Rome. It's at francescacaruso.com. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. Travel as a political act adds meaning to the journey. And Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.